The reading is from the Gospel of John, and it is chapter 20, verses 24 to 31, and starts on page 1089. So, chapter 20, verse 24. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. And good evening. Uh, Shall we start uh, by praying? Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, from that word from John uh, that we heard We thank you that uh, you speak to us through your word uh, and that by it we can know you uh, and trust in Jesus. Would you help us this evening uh, as we think more about it? Uh, Would you be working in our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the uh, 2017 word of the year, according to the Collins Dictionary, was fake news. And uh, in a world where the internet gives us uh, access to more information than ever, we seem to be less certain about what is true, not more. We carry thousands uh, of libraries in our pockets, yet one person can send one tweet, uh, and within hours, millions of people believe that the Pope is going to change the Ten Commandments. Maybe that one's fairly obvious, but there are more subtle uh, fake news, aren't there? Uh, here's an uh, article from the BBC this week. No, these photos are not from the Californian wildfires. But the photos are real. They're just not from the time or place that it was claimed that they're from. Children are having to be uh, taught how to spot fake news. And companies like Facebook are spending millions and millions uh, on this problem. Well, we've been uh, spending a few weeks at the moment in a series entitled, I Can't Become a Christian Because, thinking about reasons that you uh, or your family or your friends don't follow Jesus. Last week, Mark very helpfully took us through reasons that Christians do uh, and don't support wars. This week, our topic is an objection that I'm sure many of you have come across or have had yourselves, whether now 
or in the past. I can't become a Christian because I want to be certain it's true. And in this world of fake news, it's so hard, hard to know what is true and what isn't. It's very reasonable to want to be certain about Christianity. Well, in our uh, reading from John 20, we heard about a man who definitely would have echoed that statement. I want to be certain it's true. That's Thomas. He seems to be uh, a very practical and literal man. We don't uh, find out much about him in the Gospels, but uh, back in chapter 14, Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to prepare a place for uh, them. Uh, And we read that Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And that seems a very sensible response. Uh, I'll happily follow you, but how can I if I don't actually know where you're going? He's a very practical man. And so here in chapter 20, Thomas has just missed out on seeing the risen Jesus on Easter evening. Uh, And his friends come to tell him what's happened, but he refuses to believe their reports. And again, you can't really blame him, can you? You might have experienced uh, something like this, where a a friend comes back from a a night out and they tell a crazy story about how they met Elton John or someone and they brought them all a drink. Of course, their phone's broken and so there there aren't any photos to prove it. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Thomas has just had his life torn apart. The man he's followed for three years has been crucified. So the last thing he needs Uh, is a prank from his friends. So as they uh, gush out this story excitedly, we've seen the Lord. We get this statement uh, in verse 25 that gives Thomas the doubter his name. Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. It's a a statement uh, that countless others down the years have said, unless I see, I will not believe. I've certainly heard it myself many times when the topic of faith has come up. If I saw God, if he showed uh, himself, if he gave me a sign, then I would believe. Well, he has to wait a week. But amazingly, Jesus is gracious and responds to Thomas. He appears in a locked room and says, Peace be with you. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And when it comes to it, Thomas doesn't even need to uh, touch Jesus. Seeing him is enough. My Lord and my God, he cries. All that doubt, all that unbelief, it's gone in an instant. And in fact, he becomes so certain uh, that he ends up going all the way to India for his faith, and he even is martyred 
for what he now believes. Now, unfortunately, we can't all expect the incarnated Jesus to appear in front of us like he did to Thomas. That's not what this passage is promising us. And in fact, Jesus goes on to promise almost the opposite. Have a look at verse 29. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So yes, Thomas is enormously privileged to have seen the risen Jesus with his own eyes. And he has completely the right response to doing so. But actually, he should have believed what his friends said in the first place. And Jesus tells us that anyone who's not seen and believes is blessed. That's all of us here today who are Christians. We're blessed. It's not often that we think like that, is it? But the question that this raises is if we're blessed for believing without seeing, on what basis do we actually believe? After all, Christianity is not a blind faith, despite what some people might say. We're not asked to cover our ears, close our eyes, remove all reason from our minds. We'll have a look uh, at the next verse, and this starts to help us to understand. John tells us why he's written this book, this gospel, why he wrote down the particular things he did, even why this bit about Thomas is here. Uh, So verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have uh, you may have life in his name. Now, John didn't set out to write down uh, everything that Jesus did. Neither did the other gospel writers. That would end up being a a really big book, uh, as John says at the end of his uh, book. Instead, John carefully chooses specific parts of what Jesus did in order to, to help us put our trust in him. And in particular, he says that he's chosen miraculous signs. Now actually, there's only uh, nine signs in the whole of John, seven of which are in the first half. He's chosen these particular ones, each for a reason. John isn't asking us to believe Jesus without reasons. He's offering evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, that's the the point of signs, isn't it? They point to something. We took uh, some of the teenagers down to London last Saturday, uh, and near the church where we went, there was a sign to Buckingham Palace. Now, it would have been uh, a bit odd if, having gone and seen that sign, we were satisfied with that. If we came back and when people asked, uh, did you have a good day, we said, yes, we saw the sign to Buckingham Palace. They would think we were crazy, wouldn't they? 
the, the sign is only important because it told us where to go. We followed the sign and we saw the palace. And that was the exciting bit. So these nine signs that John writes in his gospel, they're all pointing to something about Jesus, helping us to believe who he is. And thankfully, we're not just left to work out what these signs mean ourselves, because the signs uh, have explanations, and we see people's response to them as well, which sometimes is uh, people believing, sometimes it's people opposing. For example, if uh, you read the story of uh, Jesus healing the man born blind in chapter 9 of John, Jesus then goes on to explain Uh, that he's really come to let the spiritually blind see. And we see that uh, the response is that the man who is healed believes, but the Pharisees, they start to plot to kill Jesus. So, uh, John writes so that we might believe, uh, so that as we read about what he saw, his testimony, we might believe And he even gives examples of people doing just that. Right at the start of John's Gospel, uh, people believe based on what John the Baptist says. Uh, And elsewhere, we have the whole town believing based on the testimony of a Samaritan woman who meets Jesus at the well. The town believes based on what the woman says about Jesus. So we can see that uh, John is open about his purpose. He wrote so that his readers may believe. Or to flip that round, we believe now because of what we read in John and in the rest of the Bible. We we read the testimony written down uh, in this book, we trust it, and we believe. So if you've never read it, why not give it a go? You can come and find me after the service and I'll I'll give you a copy of John that you can take for free. And believing based uh, on testimony, on what others say, is not just restricted to Christianity, is it? It's how uh, our justice system works. Witnesses are called to testify what happened. And it's the basis of journalism. You watch the news and although you're not there, you trust the testimony of someone who is. And so all the same tests that we might apply in those situations, deciding whether to believe or not what is said, whether that's consciously in court as you decide a case, or just subconsciously as you're reading the newspaper, all these similar kind of tests we can apply to the testimony that's in the Bible. But before uh, we think about some of those in a bit more detail, let's just take a step back for a moment. Because I've been talking about uh, testimony, about Jesus, but we should think about why that is so crucial, so central to the Christian faith. After all, there are some people, uh, like the deists, who think that everything you need to know about God can be reasoned discovered for yourself 
uh, by inward thought. There's no need for anyone else's testimony. So why is that uh, not what we think? Well, to start with, uh, God, if such a thing exists, is presumably much greater than us humans. Otherwise, he's not much of a God, is he? And therefore, to have any hope of understanding him, we need him to reveal himself, make himself known, explain what we're not going to be able to understand by ourselves. Now, there are, there are two ways that you can uh, show who you are to someone. Uh, for example, if you met someone and they took you into a studio and there were lots of canvases and paint and brushes lying around, I guess you'd pick up the hint quite quickly, wouldn't you? Even without talking to them. It's probably they're an artist. And you might even be able to pick up some of the things that they like uh, as you look at their paintings. And so it is with God. We live in a world of beauty and order. So we can guess that there's a creator God. And this uh, technically is called general revelation. Romans uh, 1.20 talks about this, uh, if you want to look that up later. But the trouble is, there's only uh, so much that you can learn about someone this way. And there's plenty of room for misinterpretation. So if we go back to that artist, I might see a portrait of uh, of a woman in uh, the studio, and I might assume that it's his wife, when actually it's just a client that's paid him to paint her. And there also isn't really any way uh, of discovering that he's maybe generous just by looking at what's in the studio. We'd never know that God is just or merciful or trinity if we only had general revelation, if we only looked at creation. We need something more. And that's something more, the second way that you can show yourself to someone is words. Words let us learn so much more about, what, uh, about who a person is. And they can also tell us uh, a person's purposes, why they do things, which general revelation just can't. So that's why Jesus, who's the Word made flesh, uh, and the Bible, God's words, are so central to Christianity. They are the means by which we can really know who God is, what his plan is, and how to have a real relationship with him. Which brings us back to uh, that question. How can we be certain that the testimony we have uh, in front of us here in the Bible is true? After all, it's no good... Uh, being certain based on the words that we hear, if those words aren't actually right in the first place. So there are uh, two key things that I'm going to focus on here. The, the original counts are ri- written by the Gospel writers, uh, and how those accounts got from them to us almost 2,000 years later. So let's start off by uh, thinking about those original ca- accounts, 
is what Mark, uh, Matthew, Luke and John wrote down actually what happened? Can we trust their testimony? Well, there's a, a general consensus among scholars that all the four Gospels were completed by 90 AD uh, and possibly between 40 and 70 AD. That's 10 to 40 years after Jesus' death. 40 years might seem uh, like quite a long time, perhaps more so for some here than others, but it's not actually that uncommon to write about events that long after they happened, uh, is it? And to expect an accurate account. Uh, Here's just an example I picked up. Uh, An autobiography published in 2008 uh, by Ranulf Fiennes, the explorer. He was 64 at the time this came out. And he might not be able to remember exactly in detail what he did on a particular day 40 years ago, but no one's going to doubt the truthfulness of this book. So how much more, then, uh, can we trust the word of those who were with Jesus for three years, who had spent uh, the intervening years between Jesus uh, and writing their books, speaking about Jesus all the time, and, of course, who had the Holy Spirit's help? That's not to mention uh, the detailed investigation that Luke tells us he did before writing, or that plenty of people would have known the truth and disputed anything that was made up, or indeed that uh, the Gospels contain many unflattering things, and they don't include some things that might have been helpful. So yes, they are biased. They're written for a particular, particular purpose, but that's just like any other document. And they, they're only up to that, as we see in John 20. But they're not made-up accounts. They're true accounts of what really took place. The question is, how do you interpret them? So that's the original accounts. That still leaves us uh, with how those accounts got to us now. Of course, there's almost 2,000 years have passed since then, so surely someone could have changed it to suit themselves. And uh, a while ago, you could have made that argument, but great progress has been made in uh, archaeology and texture analysis and other fields in the last 100 years or so. And the evidence is now overwhelming that what we have is indeed the original or close enough that it makes no difference. There are more and better copies of the Gospels than any other ancient document. The Iliad, Plato, Aristotle. Uh, You won't be able to read that, but the red circles are are the New Testament and the yellow circles uh, are other ancient documents. And it's just overwhelming how many copies of the New Testament we have. Well, let's look uh, a little little bit more detail about how uh, these copies came about. Um, So, John wrote down his original gospel, and then uh, people copied it. And those copies were taken to new churches around the place, and then those copies were copied, 
and more copies spread around the place, being translated, copied again. And so we end up uh, with all these different copies. You can see, can't you, that it's, it's a tree. It's not a straight line uh, like that, where if you only have access to, say, those bottom two copies, you can't actually be sure whether the, the top ones are the same or not. They could be different. That's not how it is. Instead, we've got this tree. And so you can take copies from different parts of the tree, compare them, uh, and work out what was originally there. Because uh, say you were an early Christian who wanted to, uh, everyone to believe that Jesus had blue hair. You couldn't just change uh, one of these. It'd be obvious that it was different to all the other copies. You'd have to go and find every single copy and every copy of all the other Gospels and every copy of any other document uh, that might reference Jesus. And then you'd have to persuade every person who'd read those copies before you changed them that he really did have blue hair. It's not going to happen, is it? We have more than enough of these uh, copies to be sure that what we have is the original. And we have lots of really early copies as well. Um, Here's uh, a piece of John 18 that you can go and see in Manchester, and it's from uh, somewhere between 100 and 125 AD. So not very long at all after the original was written. So, we can trust the original accounts that what John and the others wrote really is what happened. And we can trust that what we have now in front of us is the same as what they wrote. Now, I've just done a really brief overview there. Um, So do come and find me at the end if you have any questions about something I didn't cover. Um, I'll probably just point you to a book rather than giving you an answer. But but really, these arguments aren't what's going to make you believe. It might mean that uh, you're willing to give Christianity a chance. But our faith isn't uh, about artifacts and textual analysis. It's about a person. A person who loved you so much that he died on a cross, taking the punishment you deserve and rose again so that you can have life. The belief that matters, as John writes, is that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, to return to the initial question, I want to be certain it's true. Don't be scared uh, of voicing that question. Come and ask it. Uh, It's good to want to be sure. After all, Thomas said exactly the same thing. And Jesus opened his eyes to see. But those who believe what they hear are even more blessed. So, you want to be certain? Read God's word. Encounter Jesus in it. Spend time with those who follow him. And believe.
Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us minds and reason, that you don't ask us for blind faith. Thank you for revealing yourself in Jesus and in the Bible, that we can read your word now. If we are believers here, would you help our unbelief, Lord? Give us confidence in our faith. And for those who don't yet believe, help them to be open to hear the testimony about Jesus. And by your Spirit, would you open their eyes. Amen.